Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Let's see now. If memory serves me correctly, I had an appointment to meet someone here this morning. I think the name was Alex Guptill. Am I supposed to meet Alex here this morning? Where is Alex? Ah, here we go. Very good. And you're bringing something with you, Alex. That's really good. Why, why don't I get you to stand over here on this side this time? Now, that's quite a gift you're bringing there. So you remember last week, right? Yeah. Don't step back there. It drops off. We don't want to have any accidents here. What happened last week? You remember? Did you get a gift? Yeah. And what was the gift? A Nintendo Switch. A Nintendo Switch. Now, do we have that microphone working? Can you, Alex, say hello, people? Hello, people. Can you people hear him? Beautiful. All right. We're in good shape, Alex. So you got a Nintendo Switch. I'll tell you, after I left church last week, people were saying, wow, that's a good gift. So did you take it home? Yeah. Did you open it? Yeah. Did you play with it? Yes. Did you have fun with it? Yes. Did your mom and dad play with it? No. My dad did. Your dad did. <laughs> okay. The truth comes out. All right. Now, the agreement was to do what, Alex? What were you supposed to do this week? Uh, bring it back. Bring that back or bring something else back, right? Bring. You were supposed to re-gift something, right? That's the title of our series. All right, so we're going to look for somebody named Lauren Karpenko. Is Lauren here this morning? Where's, oh, over here. All right, Lauren. Well, I've got you all crossed up on different sides, but you come right on up here, Lauren. And I'm going to have you stand right over here if you would. Very good. Well, Lauren, we're glad to have you here today. Now, this is what season of the year? Uh, Christmas. Christmas, that's right. And what happens at Christmas? Oh, uh, we get presents. Uh, yeah, we give them too, but we get them. That's right. Very good. <laughs> All right, so you know the name of this series, right? Regifting? Yeah. The sophisticated and classy art of regifting. So, this young man right over here, Alex, he had an assignment. He got a gift last week, and he had to go home and make a decision. Am I going to keep this? Or am I going to re-gift it to someone else? So I haven't asked him. I don't know. Why don't you set that over here? And I'm going to sit down here so I can, I can see a little bit better here. Let, well, just stuck down. Oh, my goodness. It's a litter of kittens. No, not really. <laughs> so I want you to open that gift, Lauren. Let's see what Alex has re-gifted you. Very good. I see something. Here, I'll hold that paper for you. I see something that looks like, why don't you get that part out right there? Looks like a Nintendo Switch. Yep. Very good. <laughs> so you've been re-gifted with a Nintendo Switch. That's wonderful. 
I'm very happy to see that. Now I have to ask you to do me a favor. Okay. I want you to take that home, open it, play with it. You have a brother, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, you need to let him play with it too. <laughs> and then I want you to come back next week. You can bring this back or you can bring something else back that you'd like to re-gift. Can we do that? Yeah. Okay, now, while you're still standing here, Alex, I want you to ask to do me a favor. You see that gift right over there? Can you go bring that? You can put that back inside there if you want, Lauren. I'm going to put this paper right back on top of it. So you're going to take that with you, Lauren. And Alex, you're going to take that with you. That's for you. You can open that when you get back to your seat. Is that fair enough? Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. And I'll see you next week, Lauren. Thank you. I may miss my guess, but I'm going to guess that there's a child or two out there, maybe an adult or two, who thinks Nintendo Switch. I wouldn't have re-gifted that. I would have kept that and re-gifted something else. It's a nice gift. In fact, it might get you to thinking about Christmas. What am I going to give someone? What am I going to get from someone? In fact, it got me to wondering, what's the most popular gift, not of this year, but of many different years? So I want to take you down a quick journey, quick journey down memory lane, Christmas's past, and just share with you what the most popular gift on a number of different Christmases has been. So you're going to see these come up on the screen. Ask yourself, how many of these did you remember? How many of these did you get? 1983 Cabbage Patch Doll. You remember that? That was a really popular gift. 1985, Pound Puppy. I never remembered that one for some reason. 1989, Game Boy. A lot of you will remember that. 1995, Beanie Babies. These came along right around the time our kiddos were really young. They loved them some Beanie Babies. That was really popular. What about 1996, Tickle Me Elmo? I have no recollection of just the gift, but I do remember hearing the name. And then 2002, now we're getting into money, the iPod. It made its appearance, and it swept the country and probably the world by storm. 2006, the Wii. Oh, that was a popular gift. 2010, Kindle. Well, at least we're reading now, so that was an important gift. 2011, Angry Birds board game. Wow. 2013, I never heard of this, Doc McStuffins doll. How many of you have heard of Doc McStuffins doll? Let me see. Oh, man, I'm, out of, I'm way out of step. 2015, Frozen sing-along Elsa doll. Oh, we got some fans here, I see. So thinking about these kinds of things gets you to ask the question, so what's going to be the most popular gift this year? What's the gift that people are most excited about getting or giving? It also got me to thinking about something else. Something else that I think is worth pondering. It got me to thinking that all this talk about what's the most popular gift and what are you giving someone and what am I getting from someone, all of that talk can be very inwardly focused. Where it's all about me. It's all about us, our family, our club, our group. And it got me to thinking that there are places in the world and people in the world who are asking 
very different questions. For example, what do you suppose your life would be like if you were thinking, the best gift I could get this Christmas would be one day where my stomach didn't growl and my belly was full of food. Best gift I could get this year would be one week of sufficient clean water. The best gift I could get this year would be a month where I didn't have to worry where the rent was coming from. The best gift I could get this year would be a year with a dependable job. What do you suppose life would be like if we were asking those kinds of questions? Many people do. I'm not talking about millions or tens of millions, but hundreds of millions of people on a planet racked by poverty. We experience abundance. We do. In fact, that difference was underlined for me by the words of a writer named Rob Bell. This has been just a few years ago since Rob Bell wrote these words, but I think while a few of the numbers might have changed some, the overall picture has not changed. Listen to Bell's words. America controls nearly 20% of the world's wealth. There are around 6 billion people in the world, and there are roughly 300 million people in the U.S., That makes America less than 5% of the world's population, and this 5% owns a fifth of the world's wealth. One billion people in the world do not have access to clean water, while the average American uses 400 to 600 liters of water a day every seven seconds. Somewhere in the world, a child under age five dies of hunger while Americans throw away 14% of the food we purchase. Nearly one billion people in the world live on less than one American dollar per day. Another 2.5 billion people in the world live on less than two American dollars per day. More than half the world lives on less than two dollars a day, while the average American teenager spends nearly $150 a week. Forty percent of the people in the world lack basic sanitation, while 49 million Diapers are used and thrown away in America every day. 1.6 billion people in the world have no electricity. Nearly 1 billion people in the world cannot read or sign their name. Nearly 100 million children are denied basic education. By far, most of the people in the world do not own a car. One-third of American families own three cars. One in seven children worldwide, 158 million, has to go to work every day just to survive. Americans spend more annually on trash bags than nearly half the world does on all goods. I'll be honest with you. After I read that, I wasn't thinking about what am I getting this year or what am I giving this year. It was tough to read. It was tough to try to take in the numbers of people whose Christmas this year will be dramatically different than ours. We have abundance. It doesn't matter if you think, I don't have that much. I don't live in a huge house. The bottom line is, compared to the remainder of the globe, we have abundance. 
I realize it's a matter of perspective. And sometimes we lose perspective. Ran across a story from the pen of Michael Hodgen. He told it as an actual event. I don't know, maybe it's an apocryphal tale. But I want you to listen to it. In the story, a, a young girl going to elementary school is asked to write in a project, asked to write an essay on poverty. She, in the story, is a young girl going to school down near Hollywood. A lot of her classmates are the children of actors and movie producers and studio executives. This is apparently what the young girl wrote. Once upon a time, there was a poor little girl. Her father was poor. Her mother was poor. Her governess was poor. Her chauffeur was poor. Her butler was poor. In fact, everybody in that big house was very, very poor. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? And yet the reality is we're on a planet that caused Mahatma Gandhi to say there are countless people on this globe who are so hungry the only way they can receive God is if God comes as a loaf of bread. That's the reality. It's a tough situation. Because as I take in these numbers, and I suspect your response to them is similar to mine, I think that's staggering. What can I do about that? There's no way I can respond to that. I can't change the trajectory of world poverty. I can't make a dent in the reality of global hunger. What can I do? I can't do anything. And then I came across a quotation from a Hollywood actor. Now, I, I know, I know. You don't want to be lectured on morality by somebody who lives behind a high fence and is guarded by armed security. I, I get that. And I agree with you, actually. But on occasion, something comes through that, regardless of the source, is true to the core. Jeff Bridges was the actor. And here's what he said. Solving world hunger is extremely complex, but feeding a hungry child is not. So maybe we ought to listen to Bridges. And rather than thinking about global, think about local. Rather than thinking about humanity, think about that child in your classroom in public school. And while you're thinking along those lines, I want to go to a text, a passage of Scripture. Now, I want to tell you right up front, when we first read this passage of Scripture, your question is likely to be, what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? It has nothing to do with Christmas. That was my initial response. But on lingering over the words, by the time I walked away, I thought, that passage has everything to do with Christmas. So first of all, we have to set the context. It's found in Luke 14, but I want to give you the context. You know, set the table before we eat the meal. So Jesus has been invited to the home of a Pharisee, probably a well-to-do Pharisee that would have been consistent with the realities of the time. He's been invited to Sabbath dinner. 
Now, you know how Sabbath dinner is. People sit around the table, and they talk about this, and then they talk about that, and then they talk about the other thing. Well, that kind of thing is going to happen around this table. Jesus is sitting there at the table. Jesus, no question about it, is a celebrity. So when he comes, all eyes are focused on him. That Pharisee would certainly have broken out the cloth napkins and the fine china and the expensive silver. He wanted to be ready for all who would show up at his meal that day. Jesus shows up and so does everyone else. And three things happen. Number one, everybody is watching Jesus. Now you can understand that. It happens when a celebrity shows up. I went to a wedding some years ago here in this local community and a Hollywood actor was there. I felt bad for the couple because everybody was looking at the actor rather than looking at the couple. Well, that was the Pharisees' home. Their eyes were on Jesus. But it wasn't just because he was popular. It was because there was a man present who the text says had an abnormal swelling in his body. The implication is, is that it's painful and it is limiting. It's Sabbath and everybody's watching. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to break the Sabbath? Is he going to do something? Well, you don't even need me to tell you what Jesus did. Jesus cannot sit at the table bumping elbows with a man whose elbow and arm are so swollen he can't even bring it to his mouth without yelping in pain. Jesus can't sit there and go through that. So he heals him. And that leads to a whole encounter and teaching moment. That's the first thing that happens. Second thing that happens is that Jesus watches what's happening as people gather for the meal. And he can see, they probably tried to keep it subtle, but the elbowing, pushing people out of the way, trying to get the best seat, trying to be in the most prominent place, trying to be closest to him, closest to the host. He watched all this happen. And he used that as a teaching opportunity. He said, when you're invited to a meal... Take the lowest place. Take the worst seat. If you end up in the best seat, let it be because the host brought you there, not because you fought for it. That's the second thing that happened. And the third thing. The third thing was that Jesus got to looking around the table and realized everybody here is pretty much alike. They all went to the same schools, got basically the same levels of education, work in the same kinds of companies, make similar kinds of salaries, drive nice expensive cars, all belong to the same clubs, all attend the same church. In other words, everybody around here is pretty much alike. And so he takes that and turns it into a teaching moment. Sabbath lunch at the dinner table with Jesus and here's what he says about that third reality. Luke, the 14th chapter of Luke's gospel, verses 12 to 14. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
So Thanksgiving has just slipped into the rearview mirror. Thanksgiving at our home was quite an event. We had over 20 people at our house. Our house isn't that big. And so when my beloved, Anita, said to me, we have come into our house, I said, how many? She said, well, you know, a few. Well, how, like, exactly? Well, it's something over 20. And I said, what? She said, Jesus told me to. And I said, well, what, what are you talking? Jesus, if you're going to tell her, why don't you tell me? Check it out with me before you go talk to her. Well, they're all coming. And so we're going to be, we're going to have to breathe, you know, in ways that allow for room. We're going to be tight. And so the tables were brought in and the chairs, we were packed in there. And we had a marvelous time. Family and friends and food and laughter and story. It was a sublime moment, cold and wet outside, warm and happy inside. Does Jesus not like that? I mean, after that, I read this text. He says, don't do that. Don't invite your family. Don't invite your friends. Go out and invite those other people to come. So what's up with that, Jesus? Did you not like our Thanksgiving celebration? Different scholars point out the importance of understanding something from the Greek text. It is simply the reality that the key verb in Jesus' statement is a present tense verb that scholars say could probably more accurately be translated this way. Don't continually invite your family and your friends and your rich neighbors. Don't continually do that. Don't set up this social circle where everybody is paying everybody else back and everybody that comes to the table on a regular basis is always the same crowd distinguished by the fact that we're all alike, we can all reciprocate, and nobody is going to be indebted to anyone else because that, Jesus says, is called a club. And clubs often exist for their own benefit, not the benefit of others. Don't continually do that. Instead, put another leaf in the table, another couple of place settings among the others, and invite someone who is not part of the club who has no way to repay you, who has no way to do you a good turn for the good turn you've done them. Broaden your boundaries, stretch the boundaries, and remember, as we've said before, that your hospitality in biblical terms has much more to do with the size of your heart than with the size of your house. Jesus says, open up. Because it's as though he's saying, the truth is, you can't solve world hunger. I can't solve world poverty. We can't even make a significant dent in it. But you know what? While I can't feed every hungry family, I can feed a hungry family. While I can't do something for every poverty-stricken child, I can do something for a poverty-stricken child. While I can't fix the neighborhoods, even in this county, I can make an impact on my own. 
So Jesus says, don't continually do things just for those who are like you. Open your heart. Broaden your boundaries. Make your table a little longer and bring them in. Now, there are risks. I understand. We could probably list a number of different risks. I'm going to read you just one risk. comes from the, the eminent New Testament British scholar N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, talking about this passage, says this. Once, many years ago, I preached a sermon on this passage. I emphasized the extraordinary way in which Jesus tells his hearers to do something that must have been as puzzling then as it is now. Don't invite friends, relatives, and neighbors to dinner. Invite the poor and the disabled. The sermon, he says, had a strange effect. In the course of the next week, my wife and I received dinner invitations from no fewer than three people who had been in church that day. Which category of guests we were, I was too polite or too anxious to ask. (laughs) So let me be clear, I'm not angling for an invitation. But I am suggesting you make an invitation. Now, it's hard for us to understand in a different culture, half a world away, and two millennia removed, just how jarring this would have been. Table fellowship in that day and time respected certain norms. It respected certain classes. To sit at table with someone was to endorse them, to enter into personal and intimate relationship with them, to say, I accept you. To get a good sense of just how important that was, listen to New Testament scholar Alan Culpepper as he writes about this passage with these words. The distinctiveness of Jesus' vision of the kingdom was nowhere clearer than in his protest against discriminatory meal practices. Jesus and the Pharisees ate differently. For Jesus, meals were times of celebration and an inclusive fellowship that foreshadowed the inclusiveness of God's kingdom. He ate meals with the disciples, Pharisees, crowds, and outcasts in Galilee. In fact, and please listen to this sentence, in fact, the greatest crisis the early church faced was not the delay of the second coming, but the burning issue of whom one ate with. And then give us text that underline that. Perhaps it is time we learned new table manners. Did that register? In other words, they sat around the Sabbath dinner table not talking about why are we still waiting? What happened to the second coming? The burning issue was Who are you going to eat with? Who's going to sit at your Sabbath table? Who are you inviting to your house? And in that context, Jesus, if I could put words in his mouth, says, you can't fix world hunger. You can't fix world poverty. You can't change the destiny of people in other parts of the world. But what you can do is you can invite somebody to your table. You can give them a Christmas gift. You can take of your abundance and re-gift it. Now, maybe you asked the same question I asked as I wrestled with this text. And that is the question, okay, I'm willing, I'm ready to do that, but for who? 
that question ought to bother us that we have to ask, for who? It probably tells me and maybe you something about our social circle and the need to broaden. So after some time with it, some suggestions. What about the gardeners who mow your lawn? What about the driver that picks up your trash? What about the teenager that bags your groceries? What about the student from a foreign country who is struggling in your class and all alone? What about that irritating patient from the office? What about that kid in the neighborhood that's always causing a ruckus? What about them? What would happen if you opened your home and invited them to your table? What if you broke out the fine china, the expensive silverware, the cross nap cloth napkins, and you fed them like a king, like a queen. And then you gifted them from your abundance. What might their Christmas be? It takes a willingness to be humble. I want to read you one sentence. It's an indictment, I'll tell you right now. One sentence from the pen of a diminutive woman who had an amazing vision at the founding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Her name was Ellen White. Listen to what she writes about this issue. In trying to help the poor, the despised, the forsaken, do not work for them mounted on the stilts of your dignity and superiority, for in this way you will accomplish nothing. Translated, she says, Randy, get down off your high horse. You're not all that. Step down, stoop down, open your home, open your heart, and you do something for one person. Forget trying to fix all the problems of the world because you'll be so overwhelmed that you end up doing nothing. Do something for one. Invite them to your table. Anita and I have already made the decision, and she, does that surprise you, has already made the invitation. The plan is in place. We know the gift we'll give. I want to ask you, would you join me in that? Would you make a commitment in your heart? I will not let this Christmas season pass just celebrating with those who are like me. Jesus is not against that, but he says don't continually do that. Don't let every celebration of this season be just about you and your social clique. Find a place, find a time where you open your heart and you open your home to them. I couldn't read this without thinking of the words of the late, and in my view, great Fred Craddock. Years ago, he said it. You may have heard it, but I'll tell you, when I heard it, it burrowed its way into my mind, and I often think of it. These were Craddock's words. Wherever some eat, and some don't, whatever you have, you don't have the kingdom of God. Wherever some eat and some don't, 
whatever you have, you don't have the kingdom of God. On another occasion, in another setting, Craddock intensified it by saying this, Tell me who sits at your table, and I'll tell you who you are. That's scary. But maybe it can be a challenge to us. You remember the two pillars on which every one of these re-gifting sermons is built. You remember them? Freely you have received, freely give. That's one. And we have freely received of our abundance. We've freely received abundance that God has poured into our lives. Freely you have received, freely give. And it is better to give than to receive. So I wonder, could I borrow and adapt Craddock's words as our morning's lesson? This way. Wherever some eat and some don't, whatever you have, you don't have Christmas. Because the true spirit of Christmas is a spirit that re-gifts from abundance. Freely you have received, freely give. Now I recognize that there are some who for reasons that I may not know cannot do that. So I want to speak to you for just a moment. I want to tell you that when you finish, when we finish in this service, you can walk right to the welcome table in the lobby and volunteers, hosts for the day, as well as you reach volunteers, will help sign you up. Our church, our church's outreach, has been working with a school in San Bernardino that is poverty-stricken, some families of which have not even had enough money to wash their clothes. So our U-Reach has been reaching out with bags of supplies for washing, be able to be clean. So if you say, for a legitimate reason, I can't do that, please stop at the Welcome Center. Say, sign me up. I will give of what I have. I will do what I can to reach those who are wondering, will I have food this Christmas? Will we have electricity this Christmas? Will there be any gift for our children? God has blessed us. We're a community of abundance. It's time to re-gift some of that. Because if we really want to experience Christmas, we have to remember, wherever some eat and some don't, whatever we have, it's not Christmas. God of grace, we are sobered. We're challenged. Sometimes we think our homes are too small when it's our hearts that are small. I just pray that you would move in and work on me. On me. And Lord, if you would be so kind to work on my friends, that we might become a community known for having freely received, and now we freely give. In the name of Jesus, amen.